Welcome back to the Lighthouse Project podcast, a Children of Scientology production, and a completely collaborative effort to chat about all the issues affecting the youngest members of Scientology who didn't choose it for themselves. Our goal is to help create awareness around what Scientology feels like, specifically to a child. What becomes of them, their sense of self, family bonds, mental health, as only someone who experienced being raised in it can, and some familiar topics in a different way. Dig into how we can heal and share tools. We do have a content warning. In this podcast, we are going to share some stories and information, some details of which may be upsetting or disturbing for listeners, specifically content involving sexual assault, rape, child sexual abuse, and psychological and physical abuse of children. We encourage anyone who's been affected by these types of experiences who wish to talk to someone about it to reach out to trauma-informed organization in their area. Thank you, Amanda, for welcoming everyone into the podcast. In our last episode, we focused on Jane Doe 3's courageous testimony in the trial of Danny Masterson, where he is defending three counts of forcible rape charged by the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. And before we move on there, I really want to send out an acknowledgement to Jane Doe 3. Having gone through this experience that she's had for so many years, and it's taken so much for her to, you know, again, come to the stand and again, repeat this testimony. She's now had to uh, talk about details of what happened to her so many ways, so many times, and in such an invasive manner. And I really want to, you know, say thank you and just really acknowledge the impact that her story is having on other people and to say thank you um, to her for being so courageous and um, doing and continuing to do what she's doing. I second that. I absolutely second that. Yeah. Yeah. For this episode, we are going to examine the first expert testimony in this trial which is from Dr. Ziv, who is a psychiatrist with a specialty in forensic psychiatry. In regards to the testimony that she is providing, she says that sometimes in the course of my work, I'm asked to provide what we call blind testimony about counterintuitive victim behaviors. Every state in the union allows testimony about victims of sexual assault because people have preconceived notions about what victims do that are not true. And this is why. Um, in my opinion, is why this is so important, having this expert testimony, because the jurors in this trial have their own experiences, uh, different ways that they may have been raised, different access levels to information about sexual assault. And often when somebody hasn't experienced this themselves, they can only rely on perhaps other stories that they've been told or what they've seen in the media, what they've seen on TV. And so it's really important to include this information. So Dr. Ziv talks about common myths regarding rape. And she says that there are widely held beliefs about sexual assault. Most people think sexual assault is done by a stranger. 85% is done by someone known to the victim. And I do understand that that isn't something that's widely known certainly what's portrayed in movies or on tv it is often this stranger 
you know, that's lurking in the alleyway or um, at a park or something like that. And in fact, you are much more likely to be harmed by somebody that you know. And what comes into play there is how does a person then navigate that, depending on what that relationship is and the other relationships that are present in their life that are connected to that person. And we really do see this play out in this trial. Another myth is that a victim will fight back. In fact, even in stranger rape, fighting is only 15%. Verbal, screaming, calling out is also relatively rare in 25 to 40%, and that's in stranger assault. So Dr. Ziv there is really describing, you know, what is more common um, as compared to the ideas that we have. And we assume that when someone's being attacked, that they are verbal, screaming, calling out, they're fighting back. Um, and in fact, that's a, that's much more of a rare um, case. And really, the person's just trying to figure out how to survive. And, you know, our brain comes into play in the way that our brain reacts. And sometimes we don't react the way that we think we might. I mean, it's a very scary and intimidating situation. And if you're also, again, just trying to navigate this person who might have a particularly close relationship to you, um, there's so many factors. I think that that can be extremely overwhelming. And you just kind of, you're going to just try and pick the one thing that you think that you can do or the one thing that you can control. Yeah, Miriam, I, I think it's important to remember that power dynamics play a major role in these kinds of relationships and circumstances. And um, some of that has to do with someone's, you know, instinct over a power dynamic, the need to feel like they are not helpless in some situation that has nothing to do with you or that they have control over something in their lives or someone in their lives. And ultimately, I think that kind of power dynamic plays a big hand in just the natural experience of being gaslit through these types of experiences where you've got someone who you are meant to trust or who is insinuating that they're not giving you any reason to be distrustful toward them, which I think encourages people not only because they are in danger and um, could be risking even more by retaliating physically or vocally, but um, I think uh, in those circumstances, it also makes people feel like they don't have anything to say as if if they were to say something or do something it would be ridiculous that they would be taking it a step too far that they were considering the situation in a more dramatic manner than you know what they are actually feeling and so yeah it plays a major role and I think that's that's um, unfortunately, one of the harder things about being in long-term relationships that people then face this repercussion of, well, you were, you know, seeing this person, you implied consent, you know, consistent consent over an extended period of time. But consent is not something that um, gets, you know, locked into place with a signature. It's something that you have to consistently check in on and agree on. And, and so I think that's, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that that sense of I, I think I'm I'm glad that we are clearing up 
that that misconception. It's very common for people to be not only in lots of danger, but also the amount of mental and emotional complexity that comes with this and the amount of implied gaslighting and everything. It's just, it's a lot. Amanda, to that, those are all great points. Um, but specifically, something I always like to remind people because it is such a big misconception is a victim's proximity to their abuser does not negate the abuse that took place. There's so many reasons why someone might stay close to their abuser. Mm-hmm. Very like, So many reasons, and it's so personal. Um, it could be for safety or um, confusion, like you said, gaslighting. There's so many mental gymnastics behind um, power dynamics, grooming, um, abusive relationships, and that's something I feel, I personally, I feel like rape, and specifically rape within relationships, is seen in a very black or white manner, and it's not at all. Um, there's so many complexities that go along with it. And something else that I was thinking about, specifically with these testimonies with Jane Doe 3, are all of the layers that go along with this. Not only the relationship, we don't know what was going on, you know. Uh, well, now we, I guess we do with the testimonies, but um, but also Scientology. You are in constant victim-blaming mode. Um, you're also within the public eye. I mean, this is this was a celebrity, right? There's so many different layers to this um, that just just adds to the complexity of the situation. That's a really good point that you have to reconsent each time, every single time. Also, too, Dr. Zib said something that I could really relate to, and that is that the victim actually wants to be okay with it. They want to rationalize it. And so they want to be okay. Uh, if they, if that person likes them, if they develop a, a relationship, then it, then it, then it meant something, then it wasn't rape, then it was rough sex, then it was, you know what I mean? Like they, they're trying to reframe it so that they can be okay with it. So, and that really, that makes perfect sense to me. And also returning to an abusive relationship, it's, um, you know, maybe they'll be different this time. Maybe they didn't mean it. Uh, they apologize. There's that grooming honeymoon period that comes later that where they draw you back in. And um, I don't know. I I can I could so relate to what she was saying. And and and, and it, that is the thing that they hold against you though. But oh, but you went back. Couldn't have been right. Oh, but you were dating. You you signed that consent form to sex forever, which you didn't. Absolutely. Um, you guys have made so many great points there on that topic. And, you know, there are a lot of aspects here that come into play just in regards to a an abusive relationship um, that even without sexual assault, without rape, are going to be extremely challenging. And we see that in the way that people do tend to navigate coming out of a domestic violence relationship. So I'm sure these things will come up more. And um, there is some more about that in what Dr. Ziv says. So there is so much to understand with regard to Jane Doe 3's case. 
And I think that they're doing their best to provide that understanding. And on that note, there's another thing that Dr. Ziv talks about. She says, other misconceptions are that victims of sexual assault don't have subsequent contact with the perpetrator. Like I said, 85% is done by someone known. Not uncommon for them to have contact afterwards. Even a relationship can develop, which is very counterintuitive. Just you reading that statement makes me feel so much anger because I think I was forced to have contact with my rapists after the fact uh, via my auditor and my case supervisor. Um, And I know that's a very uh, unique thing, I guess, because of Scientology. But um, yeah, that's just my thoughts that are popping up. Yeah, I wonder what other scenario would you be forced to be in a room in close quarters with someone that had done that to you and expected to act as if it was completely fine? I think the majority of them, unfortunately, are religious, you know, communities. Yes. Yeah. Faith-based spaces that claim to embrace community. Oh, yeah. Forgiveness. You need to forgive. Yeah. Really or just pretend PR. that it isn't happening, right? Yeah. So they're going to counsel you through staying instead of safety. And that's really frustrating. That's, um, that's too bad. And also in Scientology, you can't just blow a relationship. Mm-hmm. That's what it's called, blowing. You're just leaving it and you're not addressing what you've done. So we did see that in Jane Doe 3's experience where... The people in Scientology were very involved in the relationship. She does, at the end of the relationship, she is doing that through the chaplain's office. And that's after she's had to do um, a number of handlings. So we really have to understand, the jury is not going to understand this level of detail, but we understand the complexities involved in Jane Doe 3's experience here. And trying to navigate what she's been taught, what she's been led to believe, what she understands about what is correct behavior is very warped. So not only do you have, just generally, people don't have um, a great understanding about these issues and they can sometimes have preconceived ideas, but she also has this Scientology coming into play directly, directing how she can think or behave and as well you know the last thing that someone wants to understand has happened to them is that they have been raped because it's such a difficult thing to navigate it's like well you know if that's true what does that mean for me what does that mean for how I move forward from here what actions do I need to take and what she was up against is incredibly intimidating and it's just, yeah, the, the more details that come out, it's just the more you understand what's happened and just all the levels of where Scientology's been involved to make this that much harder for her to navigate and understand what's happened. Miriam, that made me think too, like, what are my next actions? Um, I feel like if someone has not been in this experience they don't 
realize how difficult it is to not only go to the police or appropriate authorities, um, but how little action is actually taken and how little survivors are actually believed. I'm not totally sure what this what the statistics are, but how many rape kits are left collecting dust in offices? Um, how many police reports are taken but are never looked at again? Um, that's that's a whole other daunting experience on its own. It's humiliating. It's exhausting having to go and report these rapes or assaults, and then for it to go nowhere as well. It's it's awful. Absolutely. And I know that this Dr. Ziv's testimony, it, you know, in the things that she says, these rape myths, I believe that Dr. Ziv's testimony does support the things that um, Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 2 have also said. But Jane Doe 3 happens to be the one that had the long-term relationship. And so there are um, more of those things that come into play where because they live together. So there's a whole uh, another sort of slew of things that come into play there. And Jane Doe 3 understood, okay, well, if I am going to deal with this, this thing that happened to me, well, Scientology has told me that they have a justice system. You know, they have an ethics system. And that's where I'm supposed to go to to get this help. This is where it's supposed to be addressed. And she really believed, you know, she'd been told that through her Scientology experience that this is where it gets resolved and we can help him and we can make this situation better. But in fact, what she experienced was that the focus was on her. The handling was on her and it was completely reversed. So she also had to navigate through that whole experience and then to see that Danny did not receive the same treatment I'm sure would have been quite a shocking experience to her and to feel completely unsupported completely unvalidated you know these are just compounding of the issues that are involved I think also when I think about how she must have felt when she was going through this and the way that you know not only Scientology is removing your ability to feel your feelings, your ability to use certain words, but the gag that they're putting on you under threat of in tribulation, I, just that you're, you know, you're disseminating and they, you're third partying, you're nattering, all these things, meaning you're saying something critical about him, that odds are someone will report you for it. And I was never violently raped, but I experienced drug rape. And if I had not been able to talk, tell someone, like there was a huge amount of shame and I had to get over that. But once I did, being able to tell someone and sharing it, and I, you're not really sharing it, but it felt like you were sharing it, is a huge relief. Um, so I can't imagine, you know, being in, in, in this situation and not being able to tell your close friends about it, any of your close friends because they're Scientologists. Absolutely. And that really comes into play in Jane Doe 1's testimony and the reports that she did. It, it just stands out so clearly. She was gagged. She was silenced. She was punished about talking to other people, talking to her friends. And, and it really is horrific. I think one of the other aspects of this that's hard to explain unless you've experienced it is the 
very close connection to this tool called the tone scale, which is frequently accessed, this concept that you, the, the sort of the way that you present yourself, the feelings that you are experiencing are not just your feelings, but are examples and representations of your um, capability and value as a spiritual being. And so this concept of, you know, as Christy was talking about nattering, third partying, these concepts of being the kind of person who would talk badly behind someone's back insinuates that you're at a lower tone level and uh, what people uh, are saying is acceptable. And so you've got this like psychological impact of the fact that if you feel like you are talking behind someone's back, if you feel like you are bringing a, a downtone you know, concept to someone else that you are a devalued spiritual being that at your core as a spiritual being, you are so shitty. You are, you are so not worthy of love or care and that you've been trained to recognize that in others and that others feel validated and almost like heroes in their own communities by identifying your tone level as being lower than what they consider acceptable reads this kind of sense that Scientology is so good at um, that contributes so much to the brainwashing of uh, you know feeling like you are a savior that you are the person who has caught something that is out of place someone who is uh, really nasty and that you get to go after them because they deserve that they deserve you telling them that you are not enough that you are this broken um evil spirit that need to to look inward to resolve some of these problems um you know people making assumptions based on even your past lifetimes, that you would be dramatizing something that you felt happened or that you did in a past lifetime, right? Why are you projecting this piece onto someone else? Maybe you actually sexually assaulted someone, you know, many lifetimes ago and you're trying to cover your own withhold. It's like, it's so awful. It's so awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Spot their tongue mm -hmm. level. It's a great point. It's so ego stroking and elitist mindset i don't just this power hungry elitist. yeah i mean that to me and i know that they prey on your want to help button but also too it's a huge ego thing like i don't know of too many scientologists that weren't trying to be more powerful yeah it's a yeah, it's a know, brainwashing anyway, technique too it's a it it's is. a way of turning people against each other and it and others in, you yeah, it others yeah. you and, and it makes you feel that you literally are elite and everyone else is, you know, oh, look at those wogs. They, you know, better luck next lifetime. You know, <laughs> you, you do it. And that is a very common, um, a very common cult technique is othering you and placing you in this elitist pedestal. And yeah. And also it goes to self-policing. And allows you to have such a high level of control that reaches into people's most intimate interactions. And we see this in mm. communist Russia. You know, we see this in George Orwell's 1984. You know, if you can get a people to monitor and police themselves, you're going to save yourself a whole lot of work.
right? Like you, in order to really be indoctrinated into a system like this, you got to buy in. And that's where it starts. I think I never did buy in. I just wanted to get the hell out of there and never say the word Scientology again. Miriam was saying something the other day about she left and she did all these things right. She paid off her free letter stat. She got back on course. She did extension courses. She donated to this ideal org. She was a volunteer minister and I was just dying. And it's interesting to me. She was born in the Sea Org and that's a big difference. Amanda, you were born into Scientology. It's so interesting mm-hmm. the incredible control mechanisms that the the claws that they can get into you. Yeah, you know, I joined the Sirg when I was 14 and I went to Flag for, I think I was in later for four months, so I wasn't in for very long. But while I was there, um, it's a big deal when you're in a rural org and you leave for the Sea Org. It feels like people are sending you off to your future forever. I happened to be on a trip to Flag with my mother who was going through services when I was recruited. So she left from that vacation. I stayed with only the things I had in my suitcase, none of which I got to keep. They took all of it. Um, but when I stayed, um, I assumed that when I came back to visit, you know, I was, well, I was told, first of all, when I came back to visit while I was still in the Sea Org, that I needed to put on this air that it was perfect and everything was excellent um, and going so well. But when I wound up leaving to come back to Seattle to sort of help my father through my mother leaving him and whatever other chaos was happening in his life, I came back to the community that had raised me, the same like hundred people. And the the amount that I was already at that time snubbed and dismissed and forgotten and punished by this community was devastating to me in a time in my life where I was dissociating for weeks on end and had no idea where I was or what I was doing. So I actually did try to double down, pay my freeloader debt, um, you know, do all these steps to try to get in better standing. And um, I wound up giving up after about a year because I was, because I was putting everything I had into it and had been known to be this like good Scientology student, this like positive person who was committed to it, who, you know, was a, a pretty big follower growing up and then came home and it was like it was like I couldn't do anything right hmm. and even despite all of my best efforts it was I just still couldn't do anything right so after a while it was like what's the point what's the point I don't even really know where I am right now so why would I try to be here <laughs> yeah I actually read 1984 on accident when I was in the Sea Org because we were going to the Delphi school in Clearwater. Every other Saturday, we would get to go to school for, I think it was four hours that day. Wasn't really school. They had a couple of worksheets that they never checked that they would tell you to, you know, try to teach yourself math or teach yourself, you know, these different things. And I was, I remember being in a library at a, at a school and sitting by myself and thinking, well, I have to do something. And I grabbed this book that stood out to me that I thought I had recognized the name of. I had never read it before. And it turned out to be 1984. And I read it cover to cover while I was in the Sea Org. And it was one of the first things that I read 
that I felt really deeply connected to. And I had no idea why. It was completely missed on me at the time. And then looking back on it and remembering that experience of being in this cold, broken down, disheveled space with no supervision, with the exception of some power hungry adults that were, you know, lingering in the hallway, having no ability to contact my family or anyone that I knew, having no money to my name, you know, being forced into child labor and then shoved into a school every other Saturday for four hours. It was like uh, such a it's such an interesting memory now. But anyway, that was something that popped into my head. This dystopian sci-fi reality that was really probably pretty simple. Yeah, and then I was drawn to that genre and couldn't understand why. And there's no question in my mind that Elwin Hubbard was aware of those those sort of um, control mechanisms and theories and how to put them into play because he does mentioned i remember when i was in the sea orb there is many mentions of communism um you know while i was in the sea orb i was in the technical training corps so i studied a lot of the sort of more technical works but also i did um there was staff status courses as well which gives you a grounding in um policies and through my sea orb career you know i've read many of different types of policies and different types of writings by Albert Hubbard. And I do very much clearly remember him mentioning these things. So he was very aware of them. Um, and it's only sort of after when you come away of, from it and you have time to process all these things, which can take many years, you can then understand like there was real mechanisms involved here to control people. Uh, he knew what he was doing. I firmly believe that. I don't feel like he had it all dialed in in the beginning, but he built this inescapable system over time and dialed it in and dialed it in and dialed it in. So just getting back to Dr. Ziv's testimony here, one of the things she mentions is when someone is being attacked by someone they know, it can be very confusing for them. It takes them longer to figure out what's going on. And Dr. Ziv talks about ways that victims instinctively can react to what's happened. She said that victims of sexual assault also hold on to the myths. Victims believe rape occurs with strangers. So another rape myth is that women do something wrong to bring this on. So isn't that interesting? So even in the common rape myth, there is this idea of fault with oneself, that someone did something to bring it on. And then we just have this extremely hampered mm-hmm. by Scientology, like a thousandfold. So she's talking about how women tend to process this. Couldn't I just toss in there that if that's not too deflowing yeah. to the ultimate, I don't know what is. Right. And she goes on to say they consider the way that they dressed or where they went or what they wore. It's very common for victims to think they did something to bring it on. That makes it difficult for them to understand that it wasn't consensual, that it was rape. It's a humiliating experience. Most women would prefer to forget about it and go on with their lives. That leads to a difficulty of labeling it rape or sexual assault. No one wants to be a victim of rape. So they think, maybe I did something to bring it on. Maybe he really likes me. These thoughts help them to deal with it. She goes on to say that if you're living with someone for a long time and you're sexually assaulted, virtually all of those women go back. 
are we okay with just saying women? I like I understand. Like I understand. <laughs> right. But I'm also like, uh, I don't know. What What are your thoughts? A lot of what we're saying here is directly tied to this testimony, right? When we're in fact we recognize. But, okay, continue. Good catch, Victoria. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, this is something that I feel really strongly about because um, abuse and assault, especially especially when it comes to children, and I feel so passionately about this because one hundred percent more has to do with access. Yeah then it has to do with gender. And I wouldn't want anyone to feel excluded from this topic. But that's a good question. I mean, so the, the statistics, yes, but I it's don't want to right. overlook yeah. or dismiss assault that happens to all genders. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. important to note. Absolutely. So Dr. Ziv goes on to say, those who are assaulted on a first date, if you don't have a sense of trust, if you don't know someone, that doesn't mean they also won't go through that process. For an established relationship, this almost always holds true. And she goes on to talk about domestic violence in a relationship. She says, There is a huge amount of literature on intimate partner violence, which can run from emotional abuse, being cold and withholding and calling names, all the way to extreme forms of physical abuse and sexual assault. It's generally escalating. And those women who are involved in those situations almost always return, and sometimes with really disastrous effects. And I think what's really important about that is it really does go to that misconception. Oh, why did you go back? Oh, well, if it happened to you, well, why did you see him again? Or why did you stay in that relationship? And, you know, what's being talked about here is that it's really much more complex than that and humans are much more complex than that and we have reactions to things that are based on a lot of different factors in our lives that are going on at that particular point and there are so many things that could impact that and that includes yeah what supports you may or may not have in place what your understanding of these things are just how infuriating so, is it, though, that the blame is always placed on the victim? Why did you stay? Why is it not automatic anger towards the perpetrator? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, questioning. Uh, did you not notice that you were making someone uncomfortable? Did you not think to ask someone how they were feeling? Did you not think to check in with your long-term partner? Right. And the other thing that really gets me about these is that, and, you know, we was to say about people's past experiences, but it's also statistically proven that people who have experienced past sexual trauma, particularly childhood sexual trauma or anything adjacent to childhood abuse or trauma, create unhealthy relationship uh, attachments right yeah and based on that experience they are just by simply having abuse in their past are statistically more likely to return to abusive situations involving romantic relationships because they see that as a representation of what could have meant love or could have meant intimacy uh you know at a, at a formative time in their lives that that was me and I didn't 
realize it until I was receiving very intensive therapy. Um, and I could actually break that pattern. But because I was a victim of childhood sexual assault and abuse, <clears throat> I didn't realize I was gravitating towards abusive relationships later on in my life. But because they felt familiar and I didn't know anything else, it just felt, okay, This I guess this is what's happening. <laughs> I guess this mm -hmm. is what I deserve. And Scientology really, really messed with my brain on so many levels, but so much so that I continued those relationships afterwards because I didn't know any better. And I just thought, I don't know, that's kind of a tangent, but it's just wild. I, I had to do a lot of deprogramming and it took so mm -hmm. many years to realize what I was doing and what that pattern was. Yeah. It does take so many years and I wanted to mention again this shark cage framework and this shark cage metaphor that um, psychologist Ursula Benstead has put together because it is really helpful in how do I create a structure to uh, support myself and to understand more about my rights, to understand what, you know, how to put in place some healthy boundaries that I didn't have in my past experiences and to really sort of create, start to learn how to create those for ourselves. And from there as well, it's understanding and being in tune with our shark cage alarm system, which is a very sort of integral system that we have. And it has to do with the attachment of the brain and the body experience that we have these communication pathways between our brain and our body, this brain-body connection that, you know, helps us to be alert to things in our environment or particular people in our environment that when they start to push upon our boundaries, that we have this real physical uh, alarm system that we can understand. Now, if you don't have that previously, many of us were, you know, had experienced things growing up. Um, or if someone was previously abused. So you can recover or you can learn these tools. Um, and uh, that's what I want to say is like, you know, all is not lost. Um, there is hope there. We can learn these things. We can rewire our brains. And there is, um, you know, a future that we can look forward to. And we can build these tools up for ourselves and one of the things that Scientology does is a complete disconnection of this brain body communication system it's a complete destruction of any understanding of boundaries it's a complete destruction of understanding of a person's own human rights so this path of destruction that Scientology has, we can actually recover these things for ourselves. And that's what I want to say. Just, you know, there are things that we can build back up and, um, and that's really important. Can I just add um, back to what you guys were talking about earlier? It's interesting. I'm, you know, it happens to children that are abandoned or neglected, but those of us that were in Scientology, you know, specifically you, can become a people pleaser. You can um, develop these attachment issues. And so you 
become really the perfect prey for, you know, a narcissistic relationship because you need, you want love, you're trying to get love and you'll take just about anything. Um, I was in a really long-term tenure, really violent, abusive relationship. And it wasn't that I was those things. I'm the opposite. I, I don't attach to people. I don't let people in. But I thought mm. I just needed to keep my TRs and confront what was going on and not mm. react to it. Because I don't want to be reactive. I mean, that really trapped me yeah. for a long time, which is ridiculous. I look back and I'm just like, what the hell? But that that was this Scientology piece kind of playing out in this ridiculous relationship. And it was familiar. It felt not unlike the control and manipulation that I experienced in Scientology and the Sea Org, the constant threats, the constant pressures, the, mm -hmm. you know, um, it was very familiar. Yeah. yeah, I think about TRs a lot because, again, very much a brainwashing mechanism and tool. And, you know, going through these drills, I don't know how much of this we want to expand on in terms of definition. To provide a short explanation about the training routines that we'll be discussing over the next few minutes, and we will revisit repeatedly because they play a pivotal role in the life of any Scientologist, definitely Scientology children. Scientology describes their training routines as tools to help members be present to communicate better with others. Critics feel that these create hypnotic trance-like states that make members easier to control, as well as desensitize them. They are introductory first to help members communicate better. Later, they're done more professionally as a part of a member's training to become a professional auditor, enabling that member to perform counseling on other members in locked door sessions, utilizing an e-meter, or what critics refer to as a lie detector, that helps them guide members through personal questions, sometimes interrogations, around a myriad of subjects as you travel up the bridge to total freedom. During these routines, you stare into often a stranger's face for hours or days or months until you're told that you've passed. The drills in practice end up being quite personal and in very close quarters. Very often children are paired with adults and vice versa in these course rooms full of mixed-age Scientologists, and you're seated face-to-face, knee-to-knee, often touching, so very close, and any reaction from you is recognized as your inability to confront. The first training drill is called OTTR0. You sit, eyes closed, face-to-face, knee-to-knee with another person. Per Scientology Online Courses, this drill trains you to be able to comfortably be there. There's no conversation. This is a silent drill. There's to be no twitching, no moving, or anything else. If the student falls asleep, the coach says, flunk, you went to sleep, start, and they begin again. This drill can last for hours or days or months, depending on the student's reaction. The second training drill is training routine zero, or TR0. Scientology Online Courses says it's the action of being able to face someone or something without avoiding him or it, to comfortably confront another person. So you and the other person are seated about three feet apart, facing each other, eyes open, knee to knee. There's no conversation. This is a silent drill. 
You sit and look at the person across from you, and you say and do nothing. You must not speak, move, giggle, be embarrassed, become sleepy. If you do react, the coach will flunk you, correct you, and return you to the drill. This drill can last for hours, days, months. The next training routine is TR0 Bull Bait, designed to train you to confront while you're being heckled. Scientology Online Courses says bull bait means to find certain actions, words, phrases, mannerisms, or subjects that cause a student to become distracted by reacting to the coach. The word bull bait is derived from an English and Spanish sport of baiting, referring to the practice of setting dogs onto a chained bull. It'll be found that people have certain things that have caused them to react in some way, and in Scientology we call this a button, an item, a word, a phrase, a subject, or an idea that causes a response or reaction in an individual. The instruction for this drill is that the coach may say anything or do anything except leave the chair. However, the coach must be realistic in his coaching, giving real conditions and circumstances that could come up in everyday life. The student's buttons can be found and tramped on hard until they no longer produce a reaction. You continue this drill until you do not react in any way. Facial expressions, laughter, squirming. There are very little limits on what can be said and done here. In fact, although it says you may not touch the student, very often touching happens. If you're small and you're doing this with an adult, their legs will actually often be outside of yours encircling you as they lean in during bull baiting, getting in your face in an effort to get you to react. And then the topics often go to sexually explicit language, sexually explicit comments about you, very suggestive things, and you may not react. So as you can imagine, being on the receiving end of this drill as a child, or even just a female with a male, can be quite uncomfortable and get extremely inappropriate, and there are no safe words. And for the rest of your life in Scientology, you'll regularly be told to get your TRs in as a way to stop you from reacting to things, which might include bullying, assault, a myriad of abuses, as well as a wide range of feelings, grief, fear, missing your parents, etc. You should just be able to confront those things comfortably and not react to them. Um, but, you know, going through these drills that force you for hours and hours and hours at a time to sit, you know, without thinking, without blinking, but without disengaging, but without, you know, it's it's a very, uh, very much a thing to test your own sensitivities and desensitize you to almost anything around you. And um, with TRs, I think about a lot of the time, especially if the abuse sort of occurred with someone that had been affiliated with the church, that there's that that is also a tool that can consistently be used against you, right? That you either tap into TRs as a what is considered to be a tool for yourself or that someone is pushing that on you to say, you know, keep your TRs in. Um, and again, it's just a whole sense of control. Yeah. And everything mm-hmm. can right. be away by it's just bull bait. Right. Bull baiting, especially if you're doing TRs at a young age, which, you know, for me, doing TR drills started at like seven or eight. Um, And when you are starting it at such a young age, bull baiting is kind of an exciting concept. Mm -hmm. It's the only time you really get to buck the norm and it's the only time you get to really do things um, and be out of control in big ways. And especially for younger people or even people that are in their early teen years, it becomes this exciting concept, this like kind of fun, you know, flirty thing. Yeah. 
Um, and so that's where you get course rooms with people where there are, you know, 11, 12, 13 year old girls in a course room being bulbated by adult men who are doing completely yep. inappropriate gestures and using completely inappropriate language and getting really close to these young women and really just being awful and obnoxious. And that that's kind of stuff starts early. That's also a part of a grooming process for many staff members and many people that, you know, are adults that do these kinds of intimate exchanges with these teenagers. And they, they don't, you know, the whole explanation, again, turns it back around on you. You are not your body. You are much older than this. You are so much more mature than this. And so to to you get the sense that you can, A, that you should be able to take it, and B, that, you know, you are on this level footing with this other individual. Um, and it's just not true. It creates this whole false sense of, for, in my particular example, ultimately wound up in me, um, you know, being 12 and having my first boyfriend who was 19 and 20. And then dating much, much older men because it was accepted because we were not our bodies and that was normal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's um, ugh, makes me crazy. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of something Miriam said earlier about the disconnect between the body and the what'd you say? Brain, Brain body, body connection. connection and the mm -hmm. oh, yeah. that's just a somatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any H&R, any reactions you experience? Is your body trying to interrupt you and then you just need to stay strong? Right. And so in Scientology, the brain, it does not come into play. The brain is not considered in Scientology. That's considered something that psychology and psychiatry probably specifically addresses. Um, but Scientology does not address the brain. And the body is, it's just a meat body. It's just the way that we interact in the physical universe. And so the body is not particularly um, really highly considered um, as well as that comes into play on the first dynamic. We talked about that in the previous episode. And so really a person needs to um, focus more on mankind and expanding their dynamics outwards. So beyond with beyond what the body needs to do to interact with the physical universe, it's not that important. And the spirit should have power over the body. And in fact, that's not healthy because we need to be able to process what happens through our senses, what's happening in our body. So a way to teach children about if someone is making them feel uncomfortable, okay, we talk about, you know, what are the signs in the, our body that tells us that, that tells us something isn't right. And it can be things from sweaty palms or um, feeling nauseous, tummy feeling sick, um, it can be the hair stand up on your, on your arms. Um, it can be any kind of feeling of discomfort. And it really, if you can talk to children about this from an early age, it really helps them to get in tune with understanding and acknowledging our body's uh, role in communicating things to us and to trust our body and to know that our body will tell us things that are right. And what in Scientology happens is this complete disregard. And that brings up to mind again, Christy, that sentence in Dianetics that the seven-year-old girl who reacts to a kiss from a man, even a passionate one, she's not computing, oh. as in she's not understanding correctly what is occurring and she should not react. So 
it goes to this ignoring of our body's reaction to things, this complete override. And Amanda, I really appreciate that you mentioned there about the TRs because I've thought a lot about this. When I was on the technical training corps in the Sea Org, um, from about from 13 to 15 years old, or 13 to, yeah, 13 to 14, 13 to 15, um, I was on the pro TRs and had to do the two hour confront. So this is TR zero and you have to sit there for two hours and I couldn't do it. And I was on that one TR for a year. I'm not even joking. And they put me on all kinds of handlings. I did, um, everything from OW ride apps to auditing sessions to cycling through the TRs, which is where you go back and you run through the TRs, all the whole set of them, um, zero to four, uh, over and over so that you can build up the gradient. And I couldn't do it. And I looked at people around me, they were all passing me. And I was just like, well, what, what's going on? What's wrong with me? Why did they pass this? But I was also like, this is impossible. I couldn't understand how the other people had done it and gone past me and they were now on their you know upper end doc trs they were now on the pro metering they were now training to be auditors and i was still on tr zero and i didn't realize until many years later that that's what was going on it was this forced mm-hmm. connection from the body and and it's yeah it just there's so much about that and I will absolutely go into depth about TR0 and the TRs and what my experience was at a later Your body day. would not conform to that. It was saying no, no, no. And you were getting flunked because you were nodding off, blinking, sneezing, whatever, not able to sit right. there comfortably. So, and confront. It was actually every time I was, I was nodding off. Um, so it was very quickly, um, within the first, by the 15 minute mark, my head would be slumped. It was like I was, um, called yes. Anatin. Yes. Anatin. And I'd, I'd have to refresh my memory on what that was exactly, but I'm pretty sure that was an accurate description of what it was. So obviously it was a phenomenon going Anatin and this is what I was doing. So it's obviously a reaction to what's going on here. And it's this enforcement, um, where, yeah, obviously, I was just like, well, kind of. Isn't it interesting that a, an overworked happening. child so, labor, yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> child gets the only opportunity she gets in a 15, 16, 17 hour day to sit down and starts falling asleep? A normal human reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that forced, that forced concept, you know, the thing is, you're not supposed to zone out, right? Like you're told that you will be present the entire time. And it's it's almost like a, a first, you know, I kind of think of the TRs as like this first ring of fire because you yeah. are being tested. You are absolutely being pushed to your limit until you accept what you consider to be the impossible, what your body considers the impossible. You are being pushed to that breaking point and pushed past that breaking point in order to become more pliable. That's where I really, I talked about it last time. About I, So I was diagnosed with a dissociative identity disorder. And I feel like TRs are where I really honed in my dissociation. And I laugh about it now, but 
I mean, honestly, you know, you're validated for being out of your body and really dissociating from your body and yourself. And we drilled that so much in TRs. And I did my TRs a couple of times and I, I look back at it now. I'm like, wow, I was, that was really just exacerbating this mental illness that was happening and went undiagnosed for so many years. Well, it's a pattern too, right? Yeah. Going exterior is a huge mm-hmm. goal. This concept of going, especially when you're, you know, at a young age. Yeah. This concept that you will leave your body and you will feel this release and get a sense of, you know, floating above yourself. Absolute perfect harmony with everything. And is now. this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now like, I know. You it's, are, that's depersonalization and derealization. And it's not a good thing. It's very dangerous. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to read that full definition, which I've got in that tech dictionary. And it says for Aniton, it says an abbreviation of analytical attenuation, meaning a diminutive or weakening of the analytical awareness of an individual for a brief or extensive period of time. If sufficiently great, it can result in unconsciousness. Isn't that so crazy? And so like the TRs, like, doing that TR0 that can make you go unconscious. And they're like, well, you went unconscious. And then you've got to like really try and separate yourself from your body. You're being shamed and blamed and insulted. (laughs) You went anatom. Yeah. Feel like you have a stake in this game. But commit with me, but don't fall asleep. I wanted to ask you all sorts of questions about kids becoming auditors and that whole thing. I'd love to talk more about that too at some point. Yeah, also. And then at a later date, when we do like a whole deep dive into the TRs, we can, yeah, really get in there. Because, yeah, what a, it's just does the opposite of what, what you need to do to understand what's happening to you. We're going to pause here for this episode. So to be continued, we'll carry on this conversation right where we left off. Thank you all for sharing your stories and for being vulnerable and honest, sharing your truth and experiences. This has been lots of great information, but a lot of details that could be really hard to digest, especially if you are a survivor of abuse as well. So please remember to check in with yourselves. For information, support, and advice regarding sexual assault. The largest national helpline in the U.S. is RAIN. That's R-A-I-N-N. Their website is RAIN, R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. And you can speak with a trained staff member via the online chat or call their free helpline. The phone number is 800-656-HOPE. So that's 800-656-4673. We're just so happy and appreciative of anyone that is listening because this is really meant to be a part of community. We're here all together, so we're very appreciative as you're part of our village. So thank you so much.